So for this afternoon, I thought I'd share a few thoughts and reflections in relationship to the hindrances. And when you think about um, the general container that I spoke about this morning, I'd say one of the major nemesis to staying and maintaining on the path are the hindrances, particularly doubt, but all of them, really. Um, So I'm going to share a little bit about that, but before I do, I wanted to say uh, two things. One, that uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning at some point, there'll be lots of time for Q&A. But I'm really trying to keep us out of that realm for today um, so that we can actually create some space and have the silence because the Western mind is so oriented towards seeking answers immediately. The other thing I wanted to just um, put into the space was the example I gave this afternoon um, of being at, this morning rather, of being at REI with my girlfriend. And the piece that I didn't explicitly uh, say, but I want to put it out there because there are so many microaggressions that happen for all of us, sometimes in the domain of gender, sometimes in the domain of race, sometimes in the domain of sexual orientation, and identity basically. Um, and I wanted to, to say that a lot of times those microaggressions are not formed from the intention of hurt. Like I don't consider the woman that made that era a racist, but it was out of um, perception and conditioning that that response came. You know, so that's always functioning for us. And I just wanted to elucidate or highlight that component or that aspect. Um, in that uh, in that example that I gave earlier today. So now on to hindrances for a moment. So one of the things that I do sometimes um, when I'm going to be p- talking about a particular uh, concept or a particular distinction, even though I am speaking about it uh, from the direction of Buddhist thought and understanding, I still like to go to the dictionary and see what the English language says about a particular word. So I went to the dictionary and I looked up hindrance. And oh, there it was, very apropos to the Buddhist usage. So I'm going to just read you the, the definitions that I felt were particularly relevant to the understanding of hindrances as they show up in our practice. So the first definition, something immaterial that interferes with or delays action or progress. Any condition that makes it difficult to make progress or to achieve an objective. An obstacle that you are expected to overcome. So that's what the dictionary says. I guess the last one is relevant to the act of hindering or obstructing or impeding in the verb form. So, in the Dhammapada, which is the Buddhist scripture of classic text of teachings, um, there are two distinct goals for leading a spiritual life. The first is attaining happiness in this or in future lives. The second goal is the achievement of spiritual liberation, freedom, absolute peace. Many of the key themes of the verse are presented in dichotomies 
or pairs. For example, grief and suffering versus joy. Developing the mind versus being negligent about one's mental attitudes and conduct. Virtuous actions versus misconduct and being truthful versus being deceitful. It is written in this way to describe the difference between what leads to desirable outcomes and what does not. One of the verses in which the Buddha encapsulates the teachings of the Buddhas, doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. This verse gives a general overview of the teaching in terms of what Buddhas encourage people to actually do. The verse emphasizes ethical actions one should or shouldn't engage in. It also underscores the important role of ethics as principles of conduct, and we study that in relationship most often to the Eightfold Path, but there are many pieces of the Dharma that point in that direction. So something that Bhante G says, practicing mindfulness is easy. Remembering to do so is difficult. The hindrances. If you engage with this practice and accept this philosophy and practice as a way to live a good and peaceful life of liberation, you and I have come upon many of the forces in the mind which can make it difficult to stay attentive to the present moment experience. These forces run the gamut from weak to powerful. What we have all experienced to varying degrees is that we are all hampered in our ability to remain mindful, to develop concentration, and to have clear insight. Our attention is pulled in many directions other than where we wish it to land and often interferes with our effort to meditate. Even when we have the best of intentions to stay focused and present, these forces can propel us into states of preoccupation and distracted thinking. The good news is these forces and challenges offer an opportunity for the deepening of practice and skill as meditators and are not bad distractions or personal failings. It is a part of the path of practice to be mindful of them. These forces can serve us by forming the basis for cultivating awareness and wisdom. It is a necessary progression of practice to investigate the forces of distraction and agitation with the utmost care and honor, for they lay before us the opportunity to break through the cloud of confusion and reactivity that our minds are so conditioned to dwell in. We must understand their nature, their true nature, and how they work, as it is much easier to find freedom from something when we know it thoroughly. I'm sure you've all heard at this point, um, or most of you anyway, of the story on the night of Buddha's awakening from Mara. How Mara? 
the Buddhist personification of temptation and distraction, comes to him time and time again to undo the newly dawned freedom the Buddha achieved. Each time Mara arrives, the Buddha simply says, Mara, I see you. He didn't say it like that, but that's how it was. <laughs> After this happening, time and time again, Mara relinquishes the notion that the Buddha will be turned around and flees. Recognizing Mara, or obstacles, or hindrances, seeing Mara for the empty phenomena and not the truth, was effective in bringing freedom from Mara. Although there can be numerous hindrances, there are five traditionally identified as particularly important for those of us taking this journey of Buddhist practice of mindfulness and meditation. Sooner or later, all will have to address the hindrances. Often, it is sooner and later because of how frequently they occur. These obstructing mind states should not be viewed as unfortunate occurrences, but rather as an opportunity to strengthen mindfulness, concentration, understanding, and non-clinging. One of the teachers, Utejani, I don't know if you all have uh, heard of him, uh, he's an Asian monastic that from time to time will come here to teach in the United States, but uh, the, one of the major foundations of his teaching is actually um, to welcome and anticipate and celebrate when hindrance shows up. Because as a result of hindrance being there, it gives us an opportunity to actually really transform and rid ourselves of these patterns, um, which unless it showed up and we saw it, we'd be unaware that they're driving us all the time. And when you really think about it, how in the background, how much does doubt prevent us from going for what we want? How much does doubt um, engage us and move us away from well-being and health and happiness? But that's just only one of them, doubt. So the first one, sensual desire. The mind wanting something pleasurable, grasping after sense objects. It is actually this sensual desire, this um, desire for the aggregates to um, attach to pleasant experience that's at the basis of uh, certainly addiction in our society, no matter what it is you're addicted to. Um, but also uh, greed and grasping and even aversion when you think about it. This, sensual, this hindrance of sensual desire keeps the mind looking outward, searching after this object or that in an agitated and often unbalanced way. Sensual desire can be for food, comfort, physical and sexual experiences, sounds, smells, sights, and other sense pleasures. It is the very nature of sense desires that they can never be satisfied. There is no end to the seeking. Living without wants, wishes, motivations, or aspirations is impossible. However, to approach freedom, we must emphasize skillful desires and distinguish the healthy, useful desires from the unhealthy ones. 
So just as a point of clarification, understanding that when you have a nervous system, which we all do, there are going to be desires. It's actually, they're related. It's, it's impossible. However, what this practice brings us and what we're able to do is to distinguish the desires that are unskillful from those that are skillful and incline ourselves and orient ourselves and practice towards um, replacing the habits of unskillfulness with the habits of skillfulness. Hab habituation and habits, human beings, is a part of our existence. If we're trying to get to a place where we have no habits, that's a delusion and a hindrance. Wrong view. So just to think about that, because that's the nature of having a nervous system. I, not just the nature of having a nervous system, but the nature of having a, um, let me see, how do I want to say? a highly developed sense of language. Our animal brothers and sisters, not having language, not having higher order thinking like human beings, they just live in life. And they learn, they learn, like if this hurts, don't do that again. You know, but there's not this kind of seeking and this grasping and this moving towards trying to alleviate discomfort, um, um, unpleasant, through some experience or engaging with some aspect um, of life which is unskillful. And it's even easier, it's even easier to um, sustain or remain habituated to unpleasant things that we know than it is to take the opportunity or the chance to put that down and develop a new way of seeing or a new way of understanding. We become wise about harmful desires and understand the more we value freedom and its pleasures, the more likely freedom guides us in deciding which desires or aspirations we allow to guide our lives. Second hindrance, and it's, I'm only using because it's easier to talk about it, one, two, three, four, five, but really there's no hierarchy to these hindrances. Any one of them can show up at any time. Ill will, better known as aversion. The mind is filled with dislike, the condemning mind, anger, fury, resentment, hatred, annoyance, aversion, irritation, vexation, loathing, spite, resistance, avoidance, criticalness, boredom, complaining, grudge, fearfulness. Lots of words to describe that one. It shows how prevalent it is in our makeup and in this particular culture. It is the mind that strikes against the object and wants to get rid of it. The mind can burn with desire or is burning up in relationship to turning away from or being averse to some particular experience or condition. Wisdom is acquired through intimate familiarity and one of the tasks in mindfulness practice is to become familiar with the hindrance. I spent a retreat, I did a women's retreat at IMS. This is earlier in my practice career and uh, I think it was actually only the second retreat I had done. 
Um, the first one I had done at IMS, the first retreat I ever did was a Goenka retreat at Shelburne in Massachusetts. So I'm on this women's retreat. There were a hundred women there. And myself and my girlfriend were the only black folk there. So you're start, starting to get a sense that my Dharma education, a lot of it surrounds itself around race, color, culture. So anyway, I'm on this retreat. And um, it's already an alienating experience for me. And uh, I'm left-handed. So I identify my corner chair. So I can sit and have my meals in comfort without bumping arms with people. And about the second or third day into the retreat, this woman took my seat. And she sat there every meal and my mind just got, I was killing this woman with my mind. I'm not even, why speech, not going to repeat what I was saying in this, this, this mind. But she took control of my retreat for three days. And then when you add in race, mm, <laughs> deep conditioning in my bones in terms of white people moving into my space. But in the end, what was available to me was a lesson and a wisdom and a knowing that I couldn't have gotten any other way. Also the recognition that by focusing and turning my attention to what was triggered and moving through my body as a result of this woman who I'm sure had no idea what my response was to her choice and her activity. Um, was to, it was a real purification, actually, and was a major uh, component or a major turnaround in starting me on the path to engaging with the places that are difficult and traumatizing for this nervous system and this body, mind, heart. So had I turned away from this particular hindrance, this hindrance of ill will or aversion, that was just my second retreat. Um, and look where I'm sitting. I was telling Julie, I never intended to become a Dharma teacher. It was not part of the program. But through the course of just evolving in my practice and then the Dharma taking a hold of me, this is where I landed. But had I not paid attention to every difficult place along the way, I doubt I'd be sitting here. So aversion, these hindrances are not things, not mind states to turn away from, but to actually welcome them because it's an opportunity, it's a gateway into finding freedom for oneself. With ill will, this requires a willingness to shift attention away from whatever we are hostile towards, like I was really hostile to that person, and instead turn it towards the experience of ill will itself. So what does that feel like in the body? What's happening in the mind? What's happening with the heart as we uh, investigate and inquire into this mind state of aversion or ill will? It can be useful to be mindful of it in a non-judgmental and non-reactive way. It can be helpful to hold the ill will in our focus without acting on it or pushing it away. 
being mindful of how ill will feels physically. Examine the beliefs that underlie the ill will. How do we believe aversion will be beneficial or justified? What assumptions do we make about how things are supposed to be? What might ill will be covering? Frustrated desire, fear, embarrassment. With no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. With no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. The third hindrance, sloth and torpor. The mind is sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly, sluggish, laziness of mind, a mind that is heavy or dull. Sloth and torpor can arise from the absence of desire, from the absence of aversion. The lack of stimulation that accompanies constant desire and aversion can be deflating and even depressing. Sloth and torpor are forces in the mind that drain vitality and limit our ability to exert effort. Sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, or weak. When this hindrance is strong, there is not even enough mindfulness to know we have fallen into it. Sloth and torpor refers to slow energy states related to an attitude we are holding. Discouragement, frustration, boredom, indifference, hopelessness, resistance. These are some of the mind states that cause sloth and torpor. And I'm always looking for that in myself, notwithstanding that the lives we live today sometimes um, it is truly a reality that we're just tired and we just need to rest. But after you rest, if it's still there, you can be pretty sure it's sloth and torpor that's shown up. Although sloth and torpor may be present, it does not mean energy is not available, but just that we are not accessing it. Our evaluations and reactions lead to lethargy. Learning how to mindfully watch our thoughts instead of actively participating in them. I think that's a really cool statement. Mindfully watch our thoughts instead of actively participating in them can effectively stop them from draining our energy. restlessness and worry. The mind is too anxious to stay steady. Regret, agitation, jumping from one object to another without any mindfulness. A state of over-excitement. What are the causes and conditions that give rise to restlessness? 
it's important, one, reality check, to have enough exercise, to sleep, to have good nutrition, to drink water, because all of those physicalities of beingness can encourage recklessness, restlessness, excuse me, if there's a lack of them. And sometimes we're going out for the, like, the deep thing, and sometimes it's really simple, like go to bed, like have some water, like cut down on the sugar, whatever it is for your body. You all know what your bodies are and, and what's the most useful for their functioning. So that might be a place to look when you become aware of restlessness and worry. Watching too much TV, the internet, our phones, all contribute to an increased sense of restlessness. And there's nothing wrong with all these technologies, so don't misinterpret or don't understand what I'm saying in terms of the usefulness and even the enjoyment in uh, watching a good movie or talking to a friend on the phone. But understand, we must be the masters of the technology, not the technology being the masters of us. And I think too often and too, too much of the time, there is this addictive quality that can come into existence in relationship to technology. I have a girlfriend, I don't, not, you probably haven't heard her name, I don't know, but maybe, uh, Sabine Selassie, who is a, a teacher in New York, and she and her husband have this app that turns off all of their technology at nine o'clock in the evening and won't turn it back on until eight o'clock the next morning. And that's one way that they've figured for themselves supports themselves in at least daily having a period of time uh, where they're not engaged in technology, giving the mind a rest from that. So whatever it might look like for you, it's something to consider. Like, um, I don't look at my cell phone on Sundays. You know, I don't, I don't go on the internet on Sundays. I give myself one day where there's really a break. And the, the, the outside, they don't like it. Like if we're so conditioned to that immediate response that, but people don't know what's up with you. You know, just put a little message on there. I take a break on Sundays. <laughs> it can be useful to cultivate contentment, breathe through the restlessness for calming. Releasing tension or constriction in breathing can be relaxing. The more attention given to breathing, the less attention is available to fuel restlessness and worry. Dissatisfaction, frustrated desire, and pent-up aversion are common causes of agitation. Being mindful of the cause is helpful and not the agitation itself. When pain is the cause of restlessness, the pain should be addressed, and that's pain whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, or mental pain. If there's a great deal of distress um, and unpleasantness around pain, you need to address it. It's not about um, powering our way through. Because usually when there's that degree of pain that keeps us away from practicing, there's some other information there for us. It may be something really wrong that we may need to get some help with, um, or it may be that there's an over-efforting going on, or, you know, whatever it might be, but it's something to pay attention to. When thinking is a big part of restlessness, it can be useful to relax 
the thinking muscle. Trauma and PTSD experience and history can also be at the root of worry and agitation. And given the degree and the um, prevalence of trauma uh, in our culture, maybe even in humankind, I don't know, um, it's something to investigate and do an inquiry around. And nowadays it's becoming more understood and um, accepted that trauma and grief is much more than domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, or being at war. That there are many just day-to-day -day vicissitudes of living that depending on your nervous system and the conditions of the circumstance can cause a trauma response. So that's something to just keep in mind. And lastly, doubt. Skeptical doubt a lack of faith that you can stay mindful of what is true and to act skillfully. Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts your ability to cope with all the other hindrances. What am I doing here? Why did I come? I can't do this, it's too difficult. Doubt distances us from the present moment, so bringing mindfulness can be helpful in shifting from doubt. There was, uh, I think it was the first time in, when I was in training to be a Dharma teacher. I think it was the first time that I was designated to either give instructions or give a talk. I don't remember. I think it was instructions and uh, knew ahead. And it was a, in a very supportive environment. It was at a PLC retreat and had a lot of support from the teachers, uh, particularly Larry Yang. And so I was going to do these instructions the next morning. And about 11 o'clock that, and I'm a therapist, remember, I'm a therapist also, that's my other life. Um, at about 11 o'clock in the morning, my eyes popped open, and my mind took off, and I had the first ever at 57 panic attack. I didn't know that's what it was in the moment. But all I could do was ruminate around these instructions I was to give the next morning. And doubt royally had me by the throat. No matter what I did, breathing, no matter what I did, it wouldn't shift. That particular mind state wouldn't shift in that moment. So at about four in the morning, being awake all that time, literally rigid in bed, unable to move. Remember I talked about when the pain gets too much, like remove yourself, I said to myself, okay, I can't do this. Not doing it. Not giving the instructions. That was the only way I could release so that some of that energy could move through me. And I got up and I wrote Larry an email and I said, this is what's true for me in this evening. Um, and so I'm requesting that I not do the Dharma talk, not do the instructions. About an hour later, he writes me back and he says, no worries, no problem. I'll do it. You know, he's been teaching for, I'll do it. And I want you to know that this experience or condition that you just moved through in no way is representative of your abilities or capacities or capabilities. And he did the instructions. 
And from there, I got real familiar about doubt <laughs> and panic attack. But I rely on that experience. I rely on that experience to know the grip and the depth of what a hindrance can do in terms of altering or influencing or impacting any moment of our lives. So that was a big experience. Most of the time, they don't come like that. Most of the time, it's a lot more subtle and hidden. Although there are seven factors, four are always paired, which is how we get to the five. Gil Fronsdale, who's a teacher in California at IRC, really wonderful teacher if you ever have the opportunity to sit with him or have him come here. Well, he doesn't travel out of California, so uh, you'd have to go there. So Gil suggests that one explanation for this is that the paired items represent closely related physical and mental factors. The first two hindrances are related by being opposite qualities, desire, and ill will. They are both forms of wanting, although opposite sides of the same coin. Desire seeks to have something, whereas ill will wants to push that something away. In a similar way, the third and fourth hindrances are related by being opposite qualities. They both relate to or involve levels of energy or vitality. Sloth and torpor are low energy states, while restlessness and worry are high energy states. The fifth hindrance is doubt, and is not specifically connected to any of the others. However, doubt is often entwined with any combination of the other hindrances, and can and does cast its influence in many ways on our whole being. When the hindrances are strong, we lose our ability to see clearly. These hindrances cloud our mind and prevent us from knowing the cause of our suffering. The hindrances are not only present in meditation, but actually permeate our daily lives to varying degrees. They can cast a powerful influence on our perception, understanding, and actions. The Buddha taught that our minds are usually clouded with one or more of the hindrances, but because this is such a normal experience, we hardly notice <coughs> it. He also said that the mind's natural state is clear, luminous, and free of any hindrance. Mindfulness practice returns the mind to this free state. When the mind is not obscured by hindrances, Attachment doesn't arise, and your mind is willing and able to be with what is. We are not caught in wanting anything, wanting to become anything, or wanting to get rid of anything. Although it is probable that this state has shown up many times in your life, if you are unaware and not mindful when it is occurring, the impact is minimal. In these moments, in which your mind is free from hindrances, you are not in a reactive state. You're seeing things more clearly and have access to intuitive wisdom. If we purify the mind of the hindrances, then the mind is no longer stiff and rigid, 
it becomes fluid and agile and can be shaped into something beautiful. The hindrances can also be seen as strategies we use when we are challenged or uncomfortable. So many of the hindrances or the pattern of hindrance, the pattern of mind states that cause hindrance are the result of what in psychological terms would be used, would be called defenses. Defenses against whatever uh, life situation or circumstances um, we find ourselves in or are directed towards us. So how do we deal with these difficult mind states that obstruct us in our journey on this path? First, we recognize them. See them clearly in each moment. That recognition is the most powerful, effective way of overcoming them. Recognition leads to mindfulness. Mindfulness means not clinging, not condemning, and not identifying with the object. Stay awake and do not identify. Of course, then there are those times when we have the hindrance attack. We're all show up in many ways, um, in many intensities. And all we can do then is breathe and know what's going on. Even if it has to run its course, has to move through, has to be how it is. But if we see that's what's happening and we understand that that's where we are, then we can maybe sit down, take a breath, and just let it move through, as opposed to setting up the resistance or the aversion to it. So the hindrances operate in everyone. They are not a personal failing. There's no quick fix to overcoming the hindrances. Slow and steady practice wins the race. The more patiently and carefully we bring them into our practice to work with, the more probability we have of understanding them. So I just want to give you this last bit where Gil um, created an acronym, created, th created this way of working with the hindrances, which um, there's an acronym for, and the acronym is BELLA. So the word BELLA, which translates into English as beautiful, stands for actions to take in terms of working with hindrances. So BELLA, B-E-L-L-A. So the first thing to do Upon, upon coming aware is to be with it, be with it. When a hindrance appears, it is useful to first let it be, not acting on it or reacting to it. It is the training and staying present for our experience without being in conflict with it. No need to be discouraged, angry, or self-critical when faced with a hindrance. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding an inner stability in the face of destabilizing forces. E, examine. This is said to be the most important aspect of our practice with the hindrances. Exploring the hindrances involves recognizing the components. It's physical, energetic, cognitive, and motivational aspects. Learning how hindrances arise, how they are removed, and how they can be prevented from arising requires attention and discernment. 
Examine the hindrance itself. Examine its absence. Examine how it arose, how it is removed, and how to present it, prevent it from arising again. L, lessen, L-E-S-S-N, lessen its strength. Relaxing both the body and mind are good ways to lessen the intensity of strong bouts with the hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power might require removing yourself from the situation that reinforces it or direct one's attention to something that has a calming effect. Music, a nature view, uh, whatever it is that you're able to access in the moment. Focusing on an antidote to a hindrance can be helpful as well. For example, cultivating loving kindness when ill will has shown up. Second L in Bella, let go. Once we understand a hindrance, it can be appropriate to just let go of it. For example, letting go of the thinking that perpetuates the hindrance itself. This ability to let go of the hindrance increases with practice and letting go is like a muscle which grows stronger with practice and time. I think about it like a gym for the mind. A, Bella, appreciate. When a hindrance is no longer present, it is useful to take time to experience its absence. A, appreciate. When a hindrance is no longer present, it is useful to take time to experience its absence. So, Bella, be, examine, lesson, let go, and appreciate. With practice, mindfulness eventually becomes stronger and the power of the hindrances. Choosing to be mindful of a hindrance is a significant move towards being free of it. One of the most significant turning points in practice with the hindrances is when we choose freedom over being hindered. Let the practice release your heart from fear let the quieting of your mind and the clear seeing of the truth release you from confusion and clinging. Let understanding and acceptance of the way things are in this moment flower the fruit of wisdom. Thank you for your listening. Hope that's useful in helping to maintain, sustain, and continue on the path. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.